Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Of course, people like Jeff Mann and Climate Leviathan and many others think, look, really the only shot we have at saving the planet is something like global governance. And it's almost inherently undemocratic. You can't have democracy at a global scale. So then we have to start thinking, how do we have democracies at scales where democracy is really meaningful? I mean, people in the EU have already learned the difficulty of this. How do you have democracy where it's meaningful in a way that contributes to and demands, demands accountability from non-democratic super-sovereigns, which is what we probably are looking at in relationship to solving the ecological crisis, if we're going to solve it. I'm very pleased to welcome Wendy Brown to the podcast. Wendy is an American political theorist. She's class of 1936, first professor of political science, and a core faculty member in the Program for Critical Theory at the University of California, Berkeley. Her recent work focuses on neoliberalism, and she is the author of Undoing the Demos, Neoliberalism, Stealth Revolution, and In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. So thank you very much, Wendy, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So just before we start, uh, can you maybe just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your work? I teach political theory at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, I've been here for about 20 years, but I've been teaching for 40. Uh, my primary areas of research are contemporary political theory and especially crises of democracy, liberal, democratic culture, and questions about how to transform both political economies and forms of governing in a more democratic and sustainable direction. Great, great. Now, uh, I usually like to start, just get a sense of the lay of the land. Clearly, we face uh, a number of, of deeply intractable, interlinked environmental crises. Um, what one particular is on your mind right now, Wendy? Well, the probably the thing that's most on my mind at this moment is the conjuncture of the urgency of addressing the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis more generally, and the crises that we face in democracies, liberal democracies, and for democracy more generally, the kinds of things that have been characterized by right-wing populism, authoritarian populism, a turn toward authoritarianism, something your listeners know well about in uh, rises, rising right-wing forces in Europe and the UK, and that we've experienced here in this country with the thing we call Trumpism, but is much larger than Trumpism. So it's the convergence of the urgency of, of organizing what remains of democracies for a sustainable future and the catastrophic condition of those democracies uh, at this moment. Yes, now le le neoliberalism has been a, a recent focus of, of your research. Um, now, this is a term uh, that seems very wide, capacious, been used variously. Now, you see it as more than, uh, much more than you know, deregulation and privatization per se. Can you just maybe just uh, give us an overview of how do you look at, 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 at sure. this word, yeah. Um, you know what's interesting about, about understanding neoliberalism as much more than uh, a set of economic or state policies, deregulation, rollback of progressive taxation, dismantling the welfare state, uh, unleashing capital, leashing or breaking labor, all of those things are certainly part of it. But what's interesting is that one of the great neoliberal uh, governors, namely uh, Margaret Thatcher, herself understood that it was much more than a set of economic policies. She famously or infamously said, 
Economics is the method, but the aim is to transform the soul. Now, what did she mean? That the nature of social democratic governing and social democratic states, in her view, derived very much from the writings of one of the important neoliberals, Friedrich Hayek, in her view, what social democracies had done was made us into non-entrepreneurial, dependent, uh, entitled, and of course, lazy, irresponsible human creatures, rather than what she understood neoliberalism would do, which is make us individually responsible for ourselves and our families, make us entrepreneurial in orientation across every domain of life, have no expectations of provisions from the state, and above all, um, give, surrender the idea of society, instead simply understanding that there's only individuals and their families, and that that's the heart of what needs to be regrounded, resecured in a neoliberal society. Now, there's much more to this, and I'll just say a few more sentences before we continue. Um, if you read deeply in the classic architects of neoliberalism, what one sees is that they not only wanted markets to replace statism or state provision or state regulation or state redistribution, but they were also very invested in the idea of traditional morality being given its own uh, sway again, by pushing back against social justice schemes and all kinds of regulatory moral schemes that they also saw as encroaching on freedom and engaging in social engineering. So there's a deeply, we could say, socially conservative dimension to classical neoliberalism and its rollout, as well as that dimension that we identify with market freedom, deregulation, entrepreneurialism, and so forth. But these two things together, markets and morals, are intended to push back against statism, push back against social justice, push back against redistribution, and recenter or resecure the individual, the family, the moral order, and of course, a market order as the governing principles of society. Ideally, that means all states do is help prop markets and morals, but never intervene within them. And it means essentially dethroning the state, but also dethroning democratic legislation. And, and that's been one of my concerns in my writing and my research over the past 10 years is the way that neoliberalism challenges democracy as a, as a form of justice and as a form of, of governing ourselves. Instead, it says, you know, basically too much democracy means too little markets and morals as governing powers. And instead, what we should do is limit democracy to a peaceful transfer of power and to voting, but uh, not to legislated solutions to social, political, or economic problems. Uh, it's very interesting. And I, I come back to this question of, you know, how, how, how uh, challenging democracy. Um, I'm interested in, 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 in the way in which you talk about uh, and, and analyze so clearly that this question of what you might call the neoliberal logic that mm. underpins everything, you know, homo economicus, making mm. economics the model of everything. Can you talk a little bit about that, Wendy? Sure. I think it's one thing that all of us um, kind of... <laughs> It's the water we swim in, the air we breathe, but it's also something we're all kind of conscious of uh, and, and often made nervous about. That is to say, what neoliberalism has done is, is, is transformed every domain of existence, social, personal, political, cultural, and so forth, into what um, is most easily summed up as an economization of those forms. That is not necessarily literal marketization, but an economic approach to everything, using the model of economics as that which governs every domain of life. So, you know, one might approach one's education or one's dating life in terms of return on investment. Um, and in fact, the privatization of heretofore publicly provisioned higher education has forced individuals to do that. 
Should I invest in college? If so, what kind of college? What will give me a return on my investment? That's very different from public provision of higher education because it's in the interest of the public good and especially a democratic citizenry. Similarly, just at the you know really personal level, um, it's it's very common now to hear people talking about uh, not wasting a certain amount of time or energy in this kind of approach to dating or that kind of approach to, to child rearing uh, because it doesn't offer the bang for the buck that one would get if one approached it in a different way. So one, one can see this in every domain of life. And with financialization, we see a shift from concern with direct return on investment to a concern with capital value enhancement. So what, what financialization has done in the last 30 years is make, make us less into entrepreneurs and more into minders of our human capital value. You know, if I do this, will it enhance my value? If I do that, will it depreciate my value? And this pertains to everything from what one tweets or retweets to, again, how one approaches um, education or retirement or vacations and so forth. Um, so the idea of, of capital enhancement value is another thing that has you know, sort of spread across every sphere of life, social, political, cultural, and so forth. Right, and, 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 and we talked about Hayek, you, you know, you, you, you explore various thinkers uh, at the roots of, of these ideas and, you know, the, the, the primacy of markets and privatization and deregulation. And they're, you know, I guess to, to some degree uh, understood uh, as, as being part of, part of the, these ideas. These bro this broader neoliberal logic was that part of what the, the initial thinkers, uh, Hayek and, and these other, the, the Germans and, and, and order liberals or various groups, was that part of their plan? You know, there's a debate about that. And um, I think you can say it's part of their plan in part, but not to the degree that it has taken hold because, and now I return to what I said at the beginning, they also believed in the importance of, of a, of a moral order, securing our values and our conduct. Basically, Hayek and the order liberals believed we should be governed on the one hand by markets and on the other hand by traditional morality. And each had their place in organizing the hierarchies of society, but also the conduct of society and sustaining what we could call an ethics in society. They never imagined that economization would so thoroughly saturate the moral order that they also believed uh, was really important for securing families, property, individuals, and, and religious, and we could just say now, you know, sort of patriarchal uh, societies. Um, they thought all of that really needed to be preserved and protected by pushing back against social justice schemes and re-securing the, the, we could almost say natural order of evolved morality. Right. So, so there's a, to, to, to answer your question directly, um, my own argument is that the neoliberals had no intention of generating the societies that we face today, which are not only so hyper-economized, but also, um, hardly what one could call free markets. They're much more likely to be plutocracies. Certainly the US should be characterized that way. Um, and they're also uh, uh, societies in which um, citizens are extremely mobilized affectively by the, by, by the results of neoliberalism. It's gross inequalities, it's uh, its reduction, as it were, of um, uh, protected spheres of morality and ethics. And what you, what you see is a, is a highly mobilized and politicized population where the neoliberals dreamed of populations really pacified and quieted by markets and morals. 
And instead we have something of the opposite. So my own argument is there's a kind of Frankensteinian creation here that, that the neoliberals hadn't counted on, but that's another story and, and won't get us too close to the sustainability agenda that we need to talk about. Yes, yes. Um, now, many have argued that the, the neoliberal era is over. Supposedly the IMF said this four or five years ago. Uh -huh. Is this your view when you look around the world today? I mean, or in, in what ways can, uh, would you say, yeah, we're, we're still living in a neoliberal moment or, or are we passing out of it? Virgil, it's a great question. Um, I, I think uh, we should be careful of saying it's over. Uh, I do think that there are many aspects of uh, neoliberal economics and neoliberal principles that have been fairly widely discredited at the popular and political level. We're back in a, or not back in, but we're, we're in an era of, especially with the pandemic, um, the, the, the open demand for state intervention and state solutions, not just to public health, but um, to the economic problems produced by the pandemic and to a series of others, including the question of um, the climate crisis. But we have to be careful about saying neoliberalism is over if it's still enshrined in the paradigms of economics and the logics that emerge from those paradigms in governing, even if there are supplements and transformations that render these paradigms as it were impure. So I don't think it, it I, I think we're fooling ourselves if we say neoliberalism is over. I think what we can say safely is that it's on the defensive um, I don't think there are very many pure card-carrying neoliberals in power at this point. And there aren't that many even assisting power, but the models, and we, we can talk about this when we start talking about COP26 and the Dasgupta review, the model, the economic models still are saturated with neoliberal assumptions and principles. And I think the belief in um, markets and market solutions, but also in treating every sphere as if an economic model helps us see its most important features. I don't think that's gone at all. And the privatization that neoliberalism achieved over its 40 year reign, that's very much with us. We're not seeing gigantic public reinvestments in um, infrastructure in higher education, in social welfare and so forth. We're seeing bailouts, but we're not seeing that kind of pushback against neoliberalism that would really signal its end. Yes, I mean, you talk about the, the, the what we've seen uh, and that kind of is, is a really uh, uh, eye-opening change in how people see the role of the state and their expectations. But an important theme in your work I guess is the impact of neoliberalism on democracy mm. you know, that it poses a, 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 a profound threat and to democracy. And you 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 point out how political life is dominated by capital. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit and and how that would influence how the state would respond to I guess what we've seen already with the COVID, but maybe just uh, a hint of what we're going to talk about later. You know, deal with issues like uh, climate change. Sure, it's a big question. Um, maybe I'll approach it this way. I, I think that um, it's important to see the extent to which neoliberalism has discredited democratic legislation rooted in social justice and sustainability in favor, how it's discredited that and, and, and displaced it with either the belief that markets produce solutions or the affirmation of technocratic governing solutions imposed mostly by those trained in economics. So we could call it market adjusted solutions. And 
one manifestation of that that I've been paying close attention to in recent years is the extent to which right-wing forces, and you could include both conservative and then more sharply reactionary right forces, have at their core still an anti-statist, anti-social justice set of principles in the name of what? In the name of freedom, but also in the name of traditional morality. And in both cases, the challenge is to what they will openly call, as the classical neoliberals did, social engineering imposed by the state. So social engineering becomes their name for democratic legislation. And, and um, freedom becomes their, uh, the, the flag under which this challenge to democratic legislation or legislation aimed at, again, justice or sustainability is challenged. So I, again, I think that's very much present um, both on the continent and in this country, my country, uh, but you also see it, of course, in Brazil and Turkey, in India and in a variety of other places. You see um, the extent to which hard right forces, often ethno-nationalist, often uh, under the sign of a hegemonic religion as well, challenge those not just who are secular and left-leaning, but challenge those who would build a more robust democracy. And you know the open challenges to democracy in my country by the entire Republican party proceed even after our very dramatic insurrection of last January um, and the nightmare of Trumpism. I mean, it's still a party very busily trying to suppress and corrode and erode democracy at every turn from open voter suppression to uh, trying to hang on to slave era principles of gerrymandering uh, and of other principles that that you know govern our institutions um, that are openly anti-democratic. And the fact that this is something that can be, how shall I put it, done overtly rather than kind of on the sly tells you just how much the anti-democratic thrust of neoliberalism took deep hold in our culture, deep hold. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's interesting now there's, you know, seems to be, uh, certainly that there's a, a lot of rhetoric and, and, and more than that, there is a, uh, there is tremendous momentum uh, to deal with, to recognize the, the climate change challenge, uh, predicament, whatever you want to call it, and, and growing momentum to deal with it. At this moment in time, what would you expect given your political analysis of where we are in this you know, uh, ongoing uh, neoliberal uh, moment? What kind of solutions would you expect to see that we would, we would come up with given the alignment of, of, of forces? You know, here it's difficult to predict because I, I've been dwelling on the um, anti-democratic spawn of uh, neoliberal governing for the last 40 years, but there's something else that it has spawned, which is a robust opposition. And one is that particularly in uh, what we call Gen Z, the young <laughs> and, and Gen X, um, uh, the millennials, but one also sees it in the tremendously robust uh, social movements around the world um, on behalf of, of addressing climate change and on behalf of a number of other things as well. So the, it, it's, I, I'm hesitant to, to look into a crystal ball at this moment and say, these are the kinds of policies we could predict. I think what we do see both from the EU and now in my country with the Biden administration is an effort to move a little more forcefully than mm, maybe a decade ago when the free marketeers still really had the reins pretty tight. Um, I think we see an effort to combine thinking about the necessary social transformations in ways of life with 
reduction in carbon emissions and protection of uh, uh, against continued destruction of biodiversity. We, we see that, but I, I, I think it still remains a very open question as to how successfully these governing institutions can pry themselves apart, not only from neoliberal logic, but also of course, from the concerns of corporations, whether those concerns are profit-driven or shareholder value. And um, there's a battle ahead. The corporations will want to be the ones who settle the future of how we deal with climate change. And uh, on the other hand, governing institutions, both transnational and uh, national, um, will be fighting on their own uh, to do it differently, but cooperatively with corporations. So that's, that's I think, the, mm, we call it the, the dilemma and the, the grid on which uh, the immediate, the near-term climate change response future rests with the tremendous force and mobilization of climate change uh, activists also being significant, but the question is how significant. Now, I think you were trying to ask, you know, what kinds of policies do we expect to see? And we can we can talk about that next Yeah, week. yeah. Um, I suppose, you know, we're, there's been a sea change really in, in, in uh, awareness or acceptance um, and, and, tr and tremendous momentum the, uh, and the SDGs uh, getting a lot of attention and, and corporates are, are, are certainly very involved in that. Mark Carney recently said that net yes. zero represented the greatest economic opportunity of our era. That's quite a, a statement. Um, so it's, uh, I suppose we haven't really talked about corporations. <laughs> um, I, I just, uh, if you've got a, a few thoughts on, 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 on the role of corporations, I know you've done uh, 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 quite a lot of uh, work around Citizens United and so forth, but the, 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 they're not losing, the, 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 you know, the, the, the profit motive is still central. And their power. Yes. So here's the thing. I mean, we know there's a tremendous amount of greenwashing. I mean, there's no point in spending precious minutes with you um, detailing all the examples. Corporations simply um, presenting themselves from from Chevron to to Patagonia, presenting themselves as if they are the sustainable future. Uh, but then the question is why? The it's not about profit. It really is about shareholder value. And this is the thing I think we have to grasp in this particular moment of, of capitalism is that profit is one thing, of course it matters. Shareholder value as the uh, GameStop uh, players will tell you also matters. And it matters because um, the question of who is willing to invest in you, whether it's retail investors or huge hedge funds um, determines your future, which in turn determines your capacity for profitability. So in some ways we could say greenwashing has never been as important as it is now um, because it's, it's about uh, shareholder value and not only about profitability. So I think when someone tells you uh, that, that um, 2050 or 2030 goals are the greatest economic opportunity of a lifetime. It's certainly true. There's all kinds of opportunity for innovation and investment and, um, you know, whether it's electric vehicles or whether it's um, pushing carbon emissions back into the ground, shifting away from coal, whatever. All of those things are are certainly opportunities at the material economic level, but there's also a tremendous competition now among corporations to be the leader that everybody wants to invest in, small investors and large, and to reap the values, to reap the, the benefits of that shareholder value as a consequence. Yeah, um, it, it's, it's um, this question of the, of, of, of the investors uh, is, is an interesting one because of course it's so much of the investment at least in the United States, is is concentrated in the hands of you know three effectively three three large uh, exactly. 
institutional investors and so forth. Um, uh, I suppose there is a a question also about when it comes to the profitability that, you know, with with projects like NASA and so forth, there was there was some, I think, some some, uh, you know, the the moon landing and and, and, and so forth, uh, sense that the profits were that, you know, uh, reasonable levels of profitability would, would would apply um and, and I, I you know when we're going looking going forward uh there is this question about you know the kinds of returns uh financial returns that are acceptable for corporations to 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 you know to to generate yes. on the back of, of these issues and um you know if I, I'm not really sure I get the difference between profits and, and and shareholder value in a sense but what is clear is that you know this this question of fiduciary uh responsibility the question of maximizing shareholders returns uh is still very strong in you know in the Supreme Court of Delaware and whether or not that's going to change or how that might just talk about stakeholder capitalism but you know again um some people question you know what's really going on there um it becomes something vague uh something with which corporations can can manage themselves you know anything that stops regulation has got to be good um so i i suppose it's it's kind of unfolding now but there is this question for sure about the the key role uh and interest that large corporations have in the sdgs and also in in various ways investors also the, the huge sums of money going into the these these areas now and and, and biden uh seems to be you know uh very committed uh yes we're all shocked i have to say you know all of the all of us on the left expected him to govern to the center rather than to the left and he's clearly learned his lesson from the obama years when you have the senate and you have the white house you don't waste a minute because obama wasted every minute trying to compromise and he's not so we, we're, we're, we're all getting used to this and trying to figure out how to keep the priorities where they need to be. Um, but it's, it's clearly between the bailout packages um, pertaining to COVID and his new, not quite named Green New Deal and infrastructure um, budget, it's really quite astonishing. Yes. And that's a, that's a tangible break with neoliberalism. That's a move to massive government spending. And even dare I say it, um, a, a tacit, never avowed, but a tacit reliance on modern monetary theory, a tacit reliance on the idea that you do not have to tax to the degree that you spend because the money's there. Yeah, some kickback a little bit as well. There's some questions about, you know, uh, the bond yields and, yes. and you know, this yes. massive, it, 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 there's a moment there. We'll see how that plays out. But this question of the financialization of the economy, something you, 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 you explored, I'd be interested to get your perspective on that. You know, there is tremendous momentum, uh, the M word again, on, on, on you know, uh, I guess, financializing, capitalizing nature. There's natural capital solutions. Yeah. There, you know, we talk, you know, this ecological economics we've had, but this lens of, of, of financialization and looking, you know, it, it, it creeps into so many, we, we talked briefly about the Dasgupta report, COP26 is coming up. Um, maybe you could just talk about that a little bit. Look, you know, um, I don't know anybody who's read the entire uh, Dasgupta report, although I'm sure someone has. <laughs> But I, I, I did spend a full day with it. Um, so, you know, read pieces of it. Um, it's a bit like Piketty, you know, nobody reads the whole book, but everybody gets the gist. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I have tremendous admiration for what that review is trying to do. It's, it's an earnest attempt at a, at a new paradigm, a new economics paradigm for thinking, for educating, for policymaking, for governing. What's striking about it is that even as it tries to rejigger and retool the uh, paradigm of economics that it's also defending, and it's really important to see, it's, it's simultaneously an indictment of neoliberal economics and a defense of it. So it, it tries to re, retitrate and, and, and retool neoliberalism as, as economic model for a full engagement 
with what it calls nature. But as it does this, it makes zero mention of essential features of capitalism, the drive for profit, the drive for growth, the drive for now with financialization, shareholder value. So as a result, it's just a pile of contradictions. On the one hand, the Dasgupta report treats nature as assets. I mean, boldly, bluntly, nature is a set of assets. On the other hand, he keeps insisting nature is us. We're embedded in it. We are it. It's not separate from us. Now, if that's so, then talking about it as assets is, is at odds with understanding us as embedded and talking about it as a portfolio of assets, which he does, is very different from understanding ecological interconnectedness. That is understanding you know, why warm oceans in one part of the world create floods and droughts and other things in another part of the world. So there's a, a, a recognition, an attempted recognition of, of the radical reconfiguration of economics and economic thinking and the world as nothing but our assets and nothing but something to apply price theory to. And, and then uh, a retrenchment from that. He appreciates, for example, that, that only what he calls deep education in nature and ecology will create the bedrock for changed ways of life. He thinks, you know, of course there have to be changed ways of life if we're really gonna have a sustainable existence. But at the same time, he relies so heavily on economic principles for rethinking how we approach the world of ecology that it's hard to see how this deep education resituating us in nature and as nature and embedded in nature actually affects the economic principles at all. So I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the report because in some ways it's a beautiful mirror of our predicament today, which is the economists do not wanna let go of their capacity and their right, as it were, to, 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 to solve the problem within a capitalist order of an, a, a, a crisis that is not just a crisis of global warming, but also a crisis of too much production, too much consumption, and an economy rooted in growth and profit rather than sustainability and human needs. So it can't solve the problem, even in 500 pages <laughs> that it sets out to model. Um, and it, it can't deal in any way at all with, and, and doesn't even make a mention actually of the fundamental things that have to happen to produce a sustainable economic world order. Um, which is sustainable consumption, not just sustainable production, and an economy that is no longer built fundamentally on growth and the incessant search for new markets, new profit, new sources of value that the drive of capitalism generates. So there's more to say here, but that's, that's my beginning with the Dasgupta review and, and what I think will underpin COP26. Yeah. It's a, a very interesting, uh, fascinating uh, insights there. Um, now, uh, shocking. <laughs> it's, uh, it's 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 a it's a major initiative, and uh, it's five hundred pages, and and, and a lot, lot of uh, a lot of thoughts gone into that. Oh, and uh, let me add, so much of it is so rich. I learn you learn so much detail. You know, you learn so much about deforestation and livestock and fishing and all of this, but. Uh, so let me just add this, he, you know, he, he understands that fossil fuel extraction and burning must come to an end, that deforestation must come to an end. Um, he tacitly, you know, uh, understands that, that we have to stop producing plastics and other kinds of what we call forever waste, that we need a radical reduction in livestock and in fishing. We need to replace unsustainable agribusiness with sustainable agriculture. We need to transform our energy grid. We need to transform the cities and the suburbs that, that are bound to the current energy grids. 
All of that is present in the report. And then the solutions turn back to basic price theoretical economic models. But it's the heart of the paradox and the confusion of the idea of economic growth. On the one page of the newspaper, you have the shock and uh, you know uh, about, about an environmental crisis. On the next page, the, the disappointment in the levels of economic growth yes. and conflict and you know paradox at the heart of our current e economic moment. And uh, a paradox that every single one of us is bound to as well, to the extent that we are all now financialized creatures in a very literal way, that our pensions, that our homes, that everything are bound to financial markets and to the growth principles and to the, um, we could just say vicissitudes of those markets um, that, yeah. that keeps any of us from being innocent of that, of that split page that you just described. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. Focusing on you know, the markets and, and neoliberalism is one thing, but looking at, so, so maybe, and, and, and one finds oneself, you know, critical of, 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 of some of these ideas, but I, I guess at the heart also of your work is this idea of, of, of renewal of democracy, you know, the idea of what would, you know, renewal look like, yes. what would democracy look like, you know, these neoliberal ideas didn't just emerge haphazardly, you know, it was a huge focus effort, various thinkers, think tanks like the Mont Pelerin, you know, yes. over decades to, you know, establish these, these ideas. Um, what hope do you have for uh, renewal of democratic values? And, 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 and can you maybe talk about what, what, you, what you see emerging or would like to see emerging or just generally around that, Wendy? It's tough, Virgil, because um, we're not just talking about, you know, values conflicting with one another in the air. We're also talking about uh, a novel difficulty in the 21st century, which is the organization of media and social media that has increasingly become what shapes people's views, understandings, facts, non-facts, fictions, <laughs> um, conspiracies, and so forth. So, you know, the, the, the difficulty of thinking about the renewal of democracy is not simply about the decimation of it as a value and a set of practices by neoliberalization. It's also the corruption of ordinary things that democracies require, dissemination of information, common platforms, um, spaces of deliberation for the value of truth. Um, a decent education, all of those things have themselves been affected by neoliberalism, but also by other technologies, as I said, social media, and then the organization of, of mainstream media. So it's pretty daunting. And then the other daunting thing is to imagine that democracies, even when they are relatively healthy, are not particularly good at solving long-term problems or as Tocqueville put it, giving themselves privations. <laughs> that is, democracies are not particularly good at the very thing that we need to address the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis. So to care about democracy in response to its corruption by neoliberalism, by plutocracy, by autocracy, um, by the kinds of things, you know, the Turks are facing today, essentially tyranny, um, to care about democracy and to care about a sustainable future is hard enough putting them together um, and looking for resources to, to develop the future of both is really tough. That said, 
it does seem to me, as you said earlier in our discussion, that there's a kind of awakening happening in at least parts of our populations now that there is nothing more urgent than dealing with the climate crisis and associated other ecological dimensions of our crisis today, and that it will take democratic force to push that to the front of the agenda. Why? Not just because states are resistant, but because our current economic order is not gonna push that to the front. It may push it into the front window for dressing, but it's not going to make that its preeminent concern. So it's really going to take the people and it's really going to take the people in a different orientation than ordinary democracies cultivate. It's going to take us understanding existential crises and long range impacts and long range solutions as opposed to what democracies usually do, which is solve immediate and local problems or establish uh, values by which we think we ought to be ordered. So it's a huge challenge. And I think the only way to address both the climate crisis and the crisis of democracy is to address them together. That said, of course, people like Jeff Mann and Climate Leviathan and many others think, look, really the only shot we have at saving the planet is something like global governance and it's almost inherently undemocratic. You can't have democracy at a global scale. So then we have to start thinking, how do we have democracies at scales where democracy is really meaningful? I mean, people in the EU have already learned the difficulty of this. How do you have democracy where it's meaningful in a way that contributes to and demands, demands accountability from non-democratic super sovereigns, which is what we probably are looking at in relationship to solving the ecological crisis if we're going to solve it. Yes, yes. It's big. It's really big. big. It's really hard. And hardly anybody wants to think about this because it seems too daunting. But, but here we are in the 21st century, having made an enormous power that human beings have never made before, technologically, politically, economically, culturally, socially. We're shooting to the moon and back. We're, we're, we're tunneling under oceans. We're, we're creating all kinds of things that have never been created before. We also have to face our and, and, and enact our capacity politically to, to have the power to be able to come up with democratic, sustainable futures. That's, it's not out of the question if we can do all these technological things. It's just not. Yes, and, and I suppose it's a bit of a double-edged sword as well because the more urgent, the more uh, existential this uh, we, we perceive this to be and the way it's presented, the more potential there is for abuse, you know, for as Naomi Correct. talks about the shock capitalism. And we've already seen this in, in, in the UK and, and, and in other countries when yes. dealing with the COVID crisis, you know, how, how uh, state power can, uh, you know, uh, embed itself and uh, financialize itself and, and take on extra powers and so forth. Um, a very challenging situation. It is. And I would just add that I think, despite how hard I've been on corporations and international conferences undergirded by essentially neoliberal uh, frameworks, um, it really is an all hands on deck situation. I don't think it makes sense for any of us to try to be purists in thinking about sustainable futures. If there are corporations that have figured out techniques not only for profiting, but also for seriously transforming their own relationship to carbon emissions or to plastics or to other things, we have to cheer. And if we find small local experiments um, that have made fisheries into something uh, more sustainable, more long run, uh, or have figured out ways as apparently people have now with giving cows 
um, red seaweed to reduce their methane emissions, <laughs> um, we have to cheer. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be an uh, the kind of total all at once solution um, that I think some dream of, but also despair of. Uh, but on the other hand, it can't be pure incrementalism. We have to keep pushing this great big picture out there uh, while working at all kinds of levels to solve it. Uh, yeah, it's a very, very, very well said there, Wendy. And um, yeah, it's uh, that's right. Um, unfortunately, there are also some ideas around the edge that are creeping in the the geoengineering and, yes. and things like that. But absolutely, in terms and of we and we we probably and and those we need to openly fight about. I don't mean we just take every. So yeah, no, I'm, and those are the scary ones, you know, where yeah, we're yeah, really yeah. seeding the clouds and changing the temperature of the earth and experimenting. Yes. So, and, yeah. and their financial, you know, there's some of those can be very financially rewarding yes. as well. And, very and lucrative. Scale of the problem, uh, we're, we're open to, uh, you know, uh, big solutions as well. And, and I think uh, adaptation has been generally uh, uh, undervalued, uh, you know, thinking about that over, you know, coming decades and so forth. But I absolutely think that what you're talking about bringing together all the different ways of thinking and groups and so forth and being open, uh, all hands on deck and, uh, and, and yes, absolutely. What's next for you, Wendy? Uh, what's interesting. Um, so I am actually interested in, in trying to uh, think in more substantive ways about sustainability in relationship to a project um, that I've just started, which is on freedom. Uh, and here I will just say briefly what I think most people know, which is the extent to which the right, not just neoliberalism, but, but the right wing has um, really grabbed freedom for its own and left uh, dreams of emancipation and freedom on the left uh, kind of confused and in the ditch. And I wanna think through this problem, but I also wanna think through the ways in which um, in histories of conceptualizations of freedom, uh, external nature as it was called, or sustainability or our relationship to uh, the planet and to the other species on it has really never been a part of thinking or conceptualizing human freedom. So that, that's my next project. And I wish you the very best of success with that, Wendy. And thank you so much for joining me today and uh, for a fascinating discussion and, and, and insights into the challenges we're, we're now facing. And um, I wish you all the best. Fergal, thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Aaron Stibbe's book, Ecolinguistics, Language, Ecology and the Stories We Live By which has recently been published in a second edition. This groundbreaking book reveals the stories that underpin unequal and unsustainable societies and searches for inspirational forms of language that can help rebuild a kinder, more ecological world. It's supported by a free online course called The Stories We Live By. Just type the name into Google and you can find it. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.